Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 3, 2, 1. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we come in. Yeah. the podcast, it is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday. February 8th, 2021, people. I hope everyone is having a great weekend. I hope everybody did have a great weekend. And I hope everybody enjoyed Super Bowl Sunday, even if, bottom line, wasn't a very good game. Bucks beat the Chiefs 31-9. Complete domination. Here is a quick rundown of today's show. I will actually open talking a little bit about the Super Bowl because if you guys know me, you know I love all sports, and even though I don't talk a ton of NFL, I obviously watch the NFL, enjoy the NFL, have a couple thoughts on Sunday night's game, and I figure, hey, it's Monday morning, all anybody's talking about is the Super Bowl, so let's talk about that. I will then get into some of the college hoops from the weekend, Duke, Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee. Be warned, by the way. When I talk Kentucky, Tennessee, I will drop a few F-bombs. Now, it's in the context of a conversation. I'm not just swearing for the sake of swearing, but there is an interesting story that I think is uh, pertinent to what is going on at Kentucky right now, and it involves a few F-bombs. So if you're with some kids, if you're with your grandkids, if you're with your great-grandkids, if you're with some adults who don't like swearing, just be warned. When we get to Tennessee, Kentucky, I'm going to tell a story that involves a couple F-bombs, but I do want to start... With the Super Bowl Sunday, and as I said, final score, Bucks 31, Chiefs 9. And as I said also a minute ago, I know a lot of you are probably sitting here saying, Torres, what are you doing? Never heard you talk NFL before. Well, first of all, I host a national radio show, Fox Sports Radio, every Saturday night, 11 p.m. Eastern. Many of you have been nice enough to tune in. And if you have tuned in, you know I talk a lot of NFL on that radio show, pretty much from like Early August until the end of February, I talk NFL football. I also watch NFL football like you guys and girls. I watch every Thursday, every Sunday, every Monday. I love NFL football. And so, like I said a minute ago, because it is the day after the Super Bowl, it only seems appropriate that we talk a little NFL. And when I sit back and look at this game, when I sit back and look at the Super Bowl, I think the big picture story is Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I do think the story behind the story was the Kansas City Chiefs, who in many regards, I kind of feel like 
read too many of their own press clippings, believed their own hype, and they got steamrolled, they got smoked, they got embarrassed losing to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When I look at this game, the biggest story to me is, in fact, the Kansas City Chiefs. Because, like I said, I watch a lot of NFL. I love the NFL, as a matter of fact. We all do, right? We, it's, it's as American as apple pie and fireworks on the 4th of July. But as you've watched this Kansas City Chiefs team, Hasn't it kind of felt like they feel like they can do whatever they want, like they can fall behind no matter how many points they have to fall behind, and it doesn't really matter. They're going to come back. They're going to figure out a way. They got Patrick Mahomes. They got Tyreek Hill. They got Travis Kelsey, and score doesn't really matter, and we can fall behind, and we don't have to show up until halftime. We'll be fine. We're the Chiefs. We're good to go. Don't believe me? Stats kind of back it up. They fell down 24 nothing in the divisional round, Last year against the Houston Texans. I remember I was at Legacy Stadium in Vegas recording this podcast while that game was going on. Texans were up 24-0. Chiefs end up winning 51-24. And all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, oh, these Chiefs are really good. Week later, they play the Titans in the AFC Championship game. They fall behind 17-7, rip off a bunch of points and win. And then in the Super Bowl, people forget they played the uh, San Francisco 49ers down 22-10 going into the fourth quarter, and ended up winning by double digits, final score 31-10. to 10. And so when you take last year, and you take the momentum and everything that happened coming into this year, if you watch the Chiefs, if you followed the NFL, it was kind of the same. Yes, they finished the regular season 14-2 and two overall, not trying to take away from anything that happened in what was essentially a historic regular season. They started 14-1, and one, rested their starters in Week 17, But if you watched them, there were a lot of close games. Not sure how closely you watched the Kansas City Chiefs, but let me read off some final scores here uh, from the second half of the season. Beat the Bills 26-17. Beat the Panthers 33-31. Beat the Raiders. They lost to the Raiders early. Beat them again on the second time in Las Vegas 35-31. Beat the Bucks in the regular season 27-24. Beat the Broncos 22-16. I could go on and on and on and on and on. But... Final seven games of the regular season, they won every single game by one possession. And every game was a little bit different. Sometimes they fell behind early, rallied, completely dominated late, or uh, rallied, completely dominated late, and ended up winning the game. That happened a few times. Then there were the opposite times, like the first time they played Tampa Bay, where they jumped out to a really big lead and kind of let Tampa Bay chip away, chip away, chip away, Final score wasn't reflective of the fact that they jumped out early, but they couldn't put their foot on the throat of the opponent. But when I watched the Kansas City Chiefs, that was the story all season long. They just felt like, we're the Chiefs. We can flip a switch. We will be fine whenever we want to be. And they finally ran into an opponent where they could not do that. Now, obviously, in terms of the game itself, I think we have to give credit to a few different people. I think the one that stands out most to me Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, former head coach, New York Jets. My guess is after a night like tonight, he will probably get another head coaching opportunity, maybe with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There was a report that Bruce Arians may retire after this game. I don't think as I record here around midnight Eastern that it has been either confirmed nor denied, but I bring it up to simply say that Todd Bowles is going to get another opportunity. When you hold the Kansas City Chiefs to nine points on the biggest stage, You did a pretty good job. And on top of that, nine points was the lowest point total, I believe, that Patrick Mahomes has ever scored as a starter in the NFL 
Also the first time that he lost, lost by double digits. On top of that, you go across Tampa Bay's roster. Tom Brady obviously had an incredible game. Rob Gronkowski had an incredible game. Six receptions, two of them going for touchdowns. Antonio Brown, how nice is it, by the way? They say nice guys finish last. Look at Antonio Brown coming up big in the Super Bowl. Yes, I'm being very sarcastic, but that was number one. I think my first takeaway was Kansas City Chiefs kind of felt like they were playing with fire for the last 13 months, and it finally came back to bite them. Now, when I say they played with fire, I think part of it plays into the second point. Offensive line play really matters, huh? Like, I think we all think of the offensive line, oh, those big guys up front, and what do they really do, and all you got to... Well, we saw the impact that offensive line play has on an entire offense because the Chiefs could not get anything going late. Eric Fisher, their starting left tackle, goes out. And again, Patrick Mahomes was not vintage Patrick Mahomes. 26 of 49, no touchdowns, two interceptions. As I said a minute ago, first time that he has been held in single digits as a starter in, in the NFL. And the first time that on top of that, that he has lost by double digits as a starter in the NFL in games that he has actually started. And if you watch the game, and I know you guys all did, it was because he was basically on the run the entire game. They couldn't establish the run. They couldn't try, even try to establish the run. And then they fell behind, and then he had to drop back in the pocket. And every single time he dropped back, he had five people in his back, you know, in his face. Jason Pierre-Paul, some of the other guys on the Bucks defense. But that offensive line play was really, really, really important. On top of that, I would say I actually found a newfound respect for Patrick Mahomes who was getting uh, killed in the pocket, and his receivers did nothing to help him. Now, part of it was you couldn't get Tyreek Hill open, you couldn't get Travis Kelsey open, you fell behind early, all that stuff. But when I look back at this game, think about all the opportunities that KC had that literally and figuratively fell right through their hands. First possession of the game, Tyreek Hill, ball hits him in the helmet. Second, third possession, whatever it was, Travis Kelsey, Ball hits him in the hands. He drops it. End up punting. I believe that was right when they shanked the punt, and I can't remember everything that happened. That was where the Bucks, the offensive lineman, dropped the pass, but the point being, Travis Kelsey didn't help his guy out. And then late in the game, Patrick Mahomes did everything he could to keep a play alive, throws the ball into the end zone, and Darrell Williams drops it. Flat out drops it. And so when I look at this game, you can break down every little thing, every little, there's nothing to break down. The Chiefs came in overconfident, they came in cocky, they believed that they could flip a switch whenever they want, and they finally met a team that could handle them physically and a team that they could not simply intimidate by scoring a bunch of points like they did to the Texans, Titans, and 49ers last year, like they did to the Browns, and more specifically, the Bills in the AFC Championship game. Sometimes it's just not your night, and this was not their night, but in the bigger picture, it reminds me, frankly, more of a lot of college stuff that I've seen through the years, right? Like, for, for those of you who are kind of college historians, this is kind of how the Matt Leinart, Reggie Bush era ended at USC. They, had, they hadn't lost a game in two years, and the second year when everybody came back and it felt like, okay, this team's going to be historically great, and they're running through everybody, and before the Rose Bowl, ESPN does a countdown of the greatest teams of all time and puts USC at number two before they play the final game. And then they play Vince Young, and all of a sudden there's not a deficit that they can overcome. That's what this felt like. When the Miami Hurricanes played Maurice Claret, Craig Krenzel in the Rose Bowl in 2002, 
coming off a national championship, dominated the regular season. That's what this felt like. Kansas City Chiefs just felt like we could just show up and we're going to figure it out, and it didn't happen. And again, it reminds me a lot of some college stuff that I've seen through the years. The final thought that I have does go back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And specifically, it goes back to Tom Brady. And you know who I think the biggest loser in the entire Super Bowl was? It wasn't the Kansas City Chiefs. Look, they're going to be back. Andy Reid's coming back. Eric Bieniemy is clearly, clearly coming back after this offseason, and that's kind of another story for another day. Patrick Mahomes is young. Tyreek Hill is still in his prime. Travis Kelsey is still in his prime. They're going to be back. They're going to be relevant as long as Patrick Mahomes is healthy. They're going to be relevant for the next 10 years in the NFL. But you know who the single biggest loser was in the Super Bowl on Sunday? It was a guy who wasn't even participating. It was a guy who was 1,500 miles away in Boston. It was Bill Belichick. Because when I think about Tom Brady hoisting a seventh Super Bowl trophy, you know what I couldn't help but think? It wasn't about Tom Brady. We knew he was great. We knew how great he was coming in. By the way, the last two weeks, he beat Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees. If there was ever a doubt about how great Tom Brady was, that was put to rest. It wasn't the Patriots. It wasn't the Patriot way. It wasn't TB12. It wasn't Josh McDaniels. It wasn't Bill Belichick. It was Tom Brady. That was put to rest when he basically ended Drew Brees' career a few weeks ago and then ended Aaron Rodgers' MVP season two weeks before that, you know, two weeks ago. So to me, this wasn't about Tom Brady. We knew how great he was. But you know what this was about to me? The New England Patriots had the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. The greatest quarterback ever. Took them to nine Super Bowls. And they let him walk. And that was the thing more than anything on Sunday that I could not stop thinking about. The Patriots had this guy on their roster. As an NFL fan, you wait a lifetime for a guy like Tom Brady, like Peyton Manning, like Patrick Mahomes, and they let him walk. And it wasn't because of money. It wasn't because he felt he could do things that, that the, the organi- They let him walk because they didn't think he was good enough anymore. And it's crazy. And I mentioned a few minutes ago, and I know all you guys know this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I host on Fox Sports Radio on Saturday night. And myself and my radio partner, Arnie Spanier, were on air last January when the New England Patriots lost to the Tennessee Titans, pick six by Tom Brady, throws it in the hands of a defender, returned, and his career in New England essentially came to an end. But when, it, when, when I say it came to an end, that ended up being his final game, but of course nobody knew it at the time. And I remember, it was really cool, and listen, I'm not trying to brag, but one of the cool things I get to do in this job I get to talk about sports, right? And I get to be on in cool moments and talk about cool things. And that was one of the highlights of my early career. I was on radio when the Patriots got eliminated by the Titans, and I was the first person to get to speak to, is this the end for Tom Brady in New England? Now, at the time, we thought he was going to the L.A. Chargers. But the conversation that night was, is this the end for Tom Brady in New England? And I vividly remember, I will never forget this as long as I'm talking about sports and somebody is listening to it. I remember saying, he's not leaving New England. And here is why. Because even at the time he was 42 years old, at 42 years old, he still gave the Patriots the best chance to win Super Bowls. And I believed at the time, and I was wrong, that the Patriots gave him 
the best chance to win Super Bowls. That he gave the Patriots the best chance and that the Patriots gave him the best chance. And that he couldn't go somewhere else, start over from scratch, have success, and on the flip side, the Patriots could not start over with a new quarterback and have success. And, and I, 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 what's the term I'm looking for? I stuck my pole in that ground, you know, Baker Mayfield planting the flag at Ohio State. I stuck that flag in the ground. I said, he ain't leaving New England because he gives them the best chance to win and they give him the best chance to win. And at some point, they are going to realize they need each other. And by all accounts, no one at any point ever said that Tom Brady didn't understand what New England provided for him. The problem was that New England did not appreciate what they had in him. And we all know the story, but it's worth repeating. They had him under contract. They wanted him to retire as a Patriot, 40 years old. But he thought he could keep playing. He led them to a division title, and he wanted to keep playing. And it was last offseason that Bill Belichick finally wrestled control away from him, away from the owner, Robert Kraft, and said, you know what? No, we're ready to move on. We're ready to do our own thing. We're ready to start over. And again, at the time, I thought there's no way they're going to part. The Patriots will realize that this guy still gives them the best chance to win. And instead, it was the opposite. And like I said a minute ago, it's not as though Tom Brady was asking for more money or he was asking for this or whatever. He just wanted to be appreciated and he wanted to have a team around him that could help him win games at the highest level. And of course, if you go back to that team in New England, you sit there and say, well, at the time, if you remember, they lost to the Titans and they really struggled down the stretch, and it was, oh, Brady's losing his touch. Well, in hindsight, it just turns out they didn't have very much talent around him, right? I mean, if you remember back to the end of last regular season, the divisional round of the playoffs, Rob Gronkowski had retired, Antonio Brown had basically been booted from the team, Josh Gordon had been booted from the team, and so it was essentially Julian Edelman and a bunch of dudes you never heard of. And so I think back to that moment, and I think back to all of us, or at least some of us, because I was one of them saying, well, Brady's washed up. I mean, where does he think he's going to go that's better than New England? And by the way, you know who else felt that way? Bill Belichick. He said, you know what? You want to go somewhere else? That's fine. And as it turned out, Tom Brady was right. Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay. It turns out they have, a, they have real skill position guys in Tampa Bay, Chris Godwin, Mike Evans. Oh, by the way, they have a coach who believes in him, Bruce Arians. And they have an organization that's willing to build around his skill set with the window of we have to win right now. And they sign Rob Gronkowski. They go get Leonard Fournette. They go get Antonio Brown. And as I record here, midnight Eastern, February 8th, 2021, the Tampa Bay Bucks are Super Bowl champs. Isn't that the great thing about the NFL, by the way? Because, I mean, you look at, look at other sports, right? The NBA. If you don't have LeBron, you don't have KD, you ain't winning the championship. College football. You ain't Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. You're probably not winning the championship. College basketball. We'll talk about college basketball in about two minutes. But there's not very many teams that can win the championship. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers just won the Super Bowl. And like I said, I can't help but think, as I sit here on Monday morning, the biggest loser was Bill Belichick, because he had the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. And he said, you know what? I can do it without you. Well, how'd that work out, Bill Belichick? You went 7-9, and nine, and just for fun, I looked it up. 7-9, and nine, and when I say 7-9, and nine, they went 2-2 two and two to start the season. So they went what? 5-7 and seven down the stretch. Here were their wins. 
Dolphins before Tua started, Raiders, Jets twice, Ravens, Cardinals, Chargers. That's one team that made the playoffs, the Baltimore Ravens. You know who they lost to? They lost to the Bills 38-9 to in Week 16. That was the game Bill Belichick threw the phone. They lost to the Rams 24-3. to They lost to the Buffalo Bills earlier in the season. They lost to the Chiefs by two scores. Bottom line is the Patriots had the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, and they let him walk away. All right, let's get to college basketball in a minute. Uh, like I said, before we get to college basketball, really quickly, just want to let you guys know. We're going to talk Duke, Carolina, talk Kentucky, Tennessee. We're going to talk a few other stories. Iowa losing for a fourth time in fifth games. We'll talk about Alabama a little bit. We'll talk about the Big Ten becoming very interesting. But before we do, I just want to remind you, as I said a minute ago, when we talk about Kentucky, I have a story that I think is really relevant to why Kentucky is struggling right now. But I'm just going to be honest. It involves a swear word. So just be ready. Just be prepared. I'm not swearing for the sake of swearing. But I'm just telling you, there's a very interesting story that I think you need to hear involves some inappropriate words. So just be prepared as we transition to college basketball. We're going to talk Duke Carolina second. Then we'll get to Tennessee. Then we will get to Kentucky. But just be prepared. There will be a little tiny bit of inappropriate language. All right, let's get into the college basketball weekend that was and kind of a weird weekend in college basketball if you really think about it. Because on the one hand, you have games that when they were scheduled back in August or September or whenever they were scheduled, they looked really great on paper if you really think about it, right? I mean, North Carolina Duke, some may say the greatest rivalry in college basketball this Saturday. Tennessee, Kentucky, picked to finish 1-2 in the SEC. Everybody had them in their preseason top 10 to top 15. They play. Well, as it turns out, Duke is historically bad. North Carolina isn't very good. Kentucky is historically bad. Tennessee, at least coming into Saturday, was not very good. And then on the flip side, of course, the teams that we actually want to see, Gonzaga is not playing. Now, they tried to schedule a game with Houston, but Houston would have rather played something called Our Lady of the Lake, a game that really happened, by the way. Baylor was off. Michigan is still in COVID pause. Houston, as I said, played something called Our Lady of the Lake. But there were still games, and we should still talk about them. And I want to start with North Carolina Duke, because for all the, the talk about neither of these teams are very good and what does it all mean, and this was a pretty entertaining game. Final score 91-87 with North Carolina winning at uh, Cameron Indoor, and obviously it's a little bit of a different deal because there are no fans there. It doesn't mean quite as much this year. But it's a great win for North Carolina, and I do want to start with North Carolina because to me, I don't believe that they necessarily fit the profile that people were trying to that people were trying to put a square peg into a round hole. And what I mean by that is this. It is clearly a weird year in college basketball. There are clearly teams that we expect to be good that are not very good right now, starting with uh, North Carolina's opponent on Saturday, Duke, starting with Kentucky, starting with Michigan State, even Kansas, which is going to make the NCAA tournament, is not playing well right now. I think they've lost five of seven. And everybody was trying to put North Carolina into that group, and I didn't think it was really fair. Because when you look at North Carolina, yes, they struggled early in the season, but once they got into ACC play, I actually thought they were playing pretty well coming into the game against Clemson on Tuesday, which was their last game before they played Duke on Saturday. Prior to that Clemson game, they had won six of their last seven. The only loss was at Florida State, which might be the second best team in the ACC behind Virginia. And otherwise, they had largely taken care of everybody that they were supposed to. 
Then, of course, they lose on Clemson, and it immediately defaults back to, well, they just stink again, and they're, they're the same as Duke and Michigan State and Kentucky. And I said, no, 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 no. If you watch the game, and you guys know I watch everything, North Carolina really, I thought, had just a game that was reflective that they were probably looking ahead to Duke, but all of the problems that they had early in the season that we thought they had put away came to the surface against Clemson. Specifically, this was a team, North Carolina, that early in the season, they turned the ball over a lot, they didn't distribute the ball well, and they didn't shoot three-point shots well. Well, guess what happened at Clemson? 17 turnovers with only eight assists. Not going to beat anybody doing that. And five of 19 from three-point land, from the three-point shot. And so I kind of just thought, okay, if North Carolina just goes back to who they were the game before Clemson, they're going to be fine. And largely to their credit, that's exactly what they did. Now, did they play maybe their best game of the season? Absolutely. But this was a team that finished with 20 assists on Saturday as opposed to eight against Clemson. They shot the best three-point ball all season long, 10 of 15. And I think they firmly established that they are not in that Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky category in that they're a good, solid college basketball program. They're not Baylor. They're not Gonzaga. They're not Michigan this season but that they're pretty good with a chance to be really good by the end of the season. And I think when you look at this game, the most important thing that you need to know if you have not watched North Carolina all year is what will be key for them going forward is the emergence of the guy who was the best player on the court for them Saturday, and that was their freshman point guard, Caleb Love. And I know that in college basketball, we spend so much time talking about the freshman, and frankly, we're going to continue to do so with Tennessee here in a minute. But Caleb Love was kind of the key to it all for North Carolina. For people who don't watch a ton of North Carolina basketball, just know that they're basically the team that they are every year. They're great inside, physical. They're one of the few teams, if only the real, the, the really the only one still at the highest level that plays two big guys. But it's all predicated on having a guard that can make plays, that can create, that can create for others, that can hit open jump shots. And Caleb Love was supposed to be that guy. And part of college basketball is we know it's not easy for freshmen. We know every year is a little bit different. And so just because Kobe, Cody White played really well two years ago in that role and Cole Anthony was pretty good when he was healthy last year, Caleb Love was not that same guy. And he was really, really, really struggling early, and it was reflected with North Carolina. Well, fast forward a couple weeks, and guess what? Saturday, he looked like the guy that we all thought he would be coming into college basketball when he was a McDonald's All-American, when he was being given the keys to the, to the entire offense when he arrived on campus, and he had probably his best game in a North Carolina uniform. Finished with 25 points, 7 assists, still had a bunch of turnovers, but 4 or 5 from 3, and he completely controlled that game. Best game that he has had in a Tar Heels uniform, but I think bigger picture, what it's reflective of is this. If North Carolina is going to reach its potential, they absolutely need him to be the guy that he was on Saturday. Because as I said, I don't think that they're in that Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky, they're not going to the tournament category. Instead, I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think they're going to not only make the tournament, but depending on who they match up with, I think they could have a chance to have some success there. Now, are they going to be a two-seed or a three-seed? No, I think they're probably going to be a six-seed, a seven-seed, a five-seed, somewhere in there. But I think when you start looking at the ACC, outside of Virginia and Florida State, I think North Carolina at its best is really about as good as anybody else in this conference. They're certainly better than Duke. I think they could play with Louisville. They play Louisville here in a few weeks. They've already beaten Syracuse. They've already beaten some of the other teams in the middle of the pack. I think they're better than Virginia Tech. Although they didn't beat Clemson last week, I think they're better than Clemson. But when I look at North Carolina, I just think they're an interesting 
big picture conversation team. Because everybody, again, wants to lump them with the, with the bad blue bloods, but I think they're a team that is getting better, and I think they are a team that can actually make a run once they get to the tournament, assuming that Caleb Love starts to play the way that he's capable of. And I do think that, I, I think it's just going to be interesting to watch them evolve over the course of the season, and I think it'll be interesting to watch Caleb Love evolve as well. He is finally starting to play up to that potential, as I said. Uh, in his first, how about this first stat? First five ACC games, he had double-digit scoring just once. In his last five, he has had double-digit scoring three times, including 25 points at Duke. And to me, North Carolina looks like a team that is starting to figure it out they're not Duke, they're not Michigan State, they're not Kentucky. They're actually figuring it out, and they have a chance to be really good down the stretch. As far as Duke is concerned, listen, I, I'm not going to spend too much. It's like Kentucky. How many times can I break down the same thing? Duke is very limited. Duke is very, uh, they, they have parts that don't match. They're just not a very good basketball team right now. And so when I look at this game, I will say I'll give them credit. They came to play. They fell down early. They could have quit. And in many ways, they actually played their best game of the season as well. The problem was that they did a lot of things that wouldn't allow them to win, specifically having 15 turnovers. They did shoot 11 to 25 from three, but Matthew Hurt, their best player, fouled out and was basically a non-factor. And when you have a small margin for error to begin with, it is not going to make things better when your best player fouls out barely playing I do think in the big picture I thought there was one kind of weirdly positive takeaway and that's this a lot like Kentucky their freshmen outside so so they probably have three or four freshmen that came to Duke thinking oh I'm gonna be a one and done I'm going to Duke I'm great well outside of the kid Jalen Johnson who will be a top 15 pick the other guys aren't playing well enough to actually get drafted which means they'll probably have to come back next year but they are slowly starting to figure out college basketball. That was one thing that stood out to me. DJ Stewart, who's kind of a wing player, finished with 11 points. He has been actually very good for them over the last couple weeks, about seven or eight games in a row with double figures. Jeremy Roach, their freshman point guard, was actually their leading scorer. Mark Williams played well. Uh, Henry Coleman played well. These are freshmen that will be back next year for Duke. And when you start talking, because Duke, much like Kentucky and Michigan State, is already trying to, trying to project out for next year, those are guys that can actually make an impact at the college level. But right now, the bottom line is they're just not good enough. And I actually did a long-form video about this on YouTube, but what I would very simply tell you with Duke is this. Duke does not have, while Duke has a bunch of really good high school players, they do not have the regular talent that a Duke basketball roster does. The year that they had Zion Williamson, that they took college basketball by storm, Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett, and Cam Reddish were three of the consensus top five players in high school basketball that year. They don't have a single guy on their roster this year that was ranked in the top 10 of his respective class. Matthew Hurt was ranked number 12 in his class in 2019, Jalen Johnson was ranked number 13 in his class in 2020. And so when you think about why is Duke strong, well, they still got all these guys, top 20, top 30, top 40. Well, ask a Kentucky fan the difference between the number one player in America, Anthony Davis, John Wall, Carl Anthony Towns, and the number 12 or 13 player in America who can be good, but maybe not a game changer at the college level. And so when I look at Duke, that to me is their biggest problem. 
They got a lot of really good college players that will be good down the road in two or three years if they stay. But right now, they're just not capable of playing the way that you need to play. I use this analogy all the time, but think of it as the difference between having the number one pick in the NBA draft and having the number 11 pick in the NBA draft, the number 12 pick or the number 17 pick. Number one pick, you need a superstar. You need somebody to change your franchise. Number 11, number 12, you're just hoping to find a guy that can contribute and be a role player, and I think that's where Duke is at right now. They have a bunch of guys that were really good high school players but not the elite game changers, and they just have a bunch of good players that are not great. Because of it, they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. I told you last show, but now it's official. They're 7-7, seven and 5-5 seven, five and five in the ACC, and they still got a couple big games left. They still got to play Louisville. They still got to play Virginia. They still got to play North Carolina a second time, and based on what we just saw, they are not beating North Carolina a second time, and they still got to win some games in the ACC tournament. And so with Duke, like, it just is what it is. They're not an NCAA tournament team. They're not that good, and it's time to start thinking about next year, who's going to come back, who's going to stay, because this is a lousy Duke team, historically bad, no different than Kentucky. Speaking of Kentucky, they play Tennessee on Saturday. Not sure if you saw, but it was basically every single Kentucky game all season long. They start out well, they start playing well, they're making jump shots, they're passing the ball. And then it came to crunch time. About 10 minutes left, they're cruising, hitting cruising altitude, 30,000 feet and you could almost see the collapse coming. It was funny being on social media, seeing Kentucky fans, say, you know, you tweet something positive about them, and I don't think Kentucky fans are, they can be negative at times like any fan base, but they said, Torres, give it a minute, it's coming, our collapse is coming, it ain't gonna work out, and sure enough, they completely fall apart, Tennessee wins going away, but it was basically every Kentucky game ever, but I wanna talk about both teams, but I do wanna start with Tennessee. And here's why I want to start with Tennessee. Because boy, oh boy, what a difference two games can make. <laughs> and if you guys are religious listeners to this show, you know that it was as recently as last Wednesday that I had just completely given up on Tennessee. I had taken the stake, I had driven the stake into the coffin, I was throwing dirt on the coffin, and I just said, look, Tennessee's a fine team. Tennessee's a good team. But six weeks ago when they wanted Missouri to open SEC play, we thought they were a great team. We thought they were a team on the Gonzaga-Baylor level, or if not on the Gonzaga-Baylor level, maybe just a tiny step below them. And then all of a sudden time goes on, injuries happen, Jaden Springer is out, but you start to see kind of the makeup of this team in the lead-up to the Kentucky game. They're good, they're talented, good players, good people, but they don't have that, they don't have a few things. They don't have that alpha personality. They don't have a guy that can go and create his own offense and make plays and make plays for others the way that I just described Caleb Love or whomever. They weren't playing defense at the level that they were before, but most importantly, it's what I said a second ago. They didn't have that mental, they didn't have that nastiness to them. They didn't have, as I said, that alpha personality. I thought it was interesting. Dick Vitale in the lead up to the game kept talking about the mental toughness for both teams. And we're going to talk about Kentucky in a second. But I thought it was very interesting for Tennessee, a team that has a bunch of veterans, a team that has two seniors who have been around for four years in the front court, a team that has two seniors that won an SEC title, two seniors that made a Sweet 16. I mean, you can say a lot about Kentucky, but ain't nobody was there last year. And yes, I'm, I'm tripping over my words and saying triple negatives and not even saying real English language there. But nobody on Kentucky's roster was there except for Keon Brooks. 
Tennessee has guys that have won an SEC championship. And so after the Ole Miss game, I just said, look, I'm done with Tennessee. It, I'm, it's over. Until you get an alpha, until you get a guy that wants the ball, wants to make plays, wants to lead this team, you're not going to win the games that matter. Well, sure enough, what happens on Saturday at Rupp? But the two freshmen, Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer, take over, completely dominate the backstretch of the game. Were the two best players on the court late? Keon Brooks was good early for Kentucky. Were the two best freshmen playing the school that always has great freshmen? Completely dominate the game down the stretch. And all of a sudden, I'm not going to lie. I'm back in on Tennessee. And when it comes to those two guys, let me say this. I think that it'd be easy to lump the two of them together. Because Keon Johnson had 27, Jaden Springer had 23, but to me, Keon Johnson was the guy. Jaden Springer was awesome, not taking anything away from Jaden Springer, but 23 points from Jaden Springer, but he kind of got it in the flow of the offense, and he got it off fast breaks, and he had a steal here, and all of a sudden, he has 23 points. Keon Johnson was that alpha guy that Tennessee needs, taking people off the dribble, attacking the basket, finishing at the rim, making plays for others. Not only finishes with 27 points, but has 11 free throw attempts, which means he's attacking. Three assists, and including a couple late that set up the game winners, or, or the game winning plays that ultimately decided the game. And he was just that guy that Tennessee needs. And so when I look at Tennessee in the big picture, I'm kind of sitting here saying, if they can get that Keon Johnson every single game, I might be back in on Tennessee. Because I look at Tennessee and I sit there and say, you know what? That is the exact guy that they needed, and we know he has the pedigree because he's in every mock draft as a top 15 pick, but we just hadn't seen it yet at the college level. And so I don't want to get too high on Tennessee after one game. I got really low after the last game, but that was the exact guy that they needed over the course of this season, and if they can get that guy every single game, then I do think we're talking about them as that potential maybe the best team out of the SEC going into the NCAA tournament. Now, they're not going to win the SEC at this point, but you talk about teams that could be dangerous going into the NCAA tournament. It could be this Tennessee team, but that, they need that Keon Johnson every single night. But I think it's interesting, and the drama, the saga that is Tennessee basketball as the Vols turn, it took another turn. And a day after being out on him, after the old Miss game, I am back in, but I want to see that Keon Johnson every night. <sighs> then there's Kentucky. And I really don't know what to say about Kentucky at this point that I have not already said. But this game for Kentucky was literally, and I know I use the word literally too much, but it's appropriate here, literally the microcosm of their entire season. They play well for a stretch, they play well for a half, they play well for 30 minutes, and then it gets to crunch time, and they completely collapse. And by the way, I thought it was funny, that's why Kentucky fans were not impressed with Tennessee's performance, because they just said, well, anybody could have done that, because everybody has done it against us, and I don't know that I necessarily believe it, because I thought Keon Johnson was awesome, but I also don't think it was an unfair analysis, because I watched basically every Kentucky game this year, and that is exactly who they have been over the course of this year get up early, sometimes lead at halftime, sometimes come out, out of the, the half playing really well, sometimes come out playing sloppy, but at some point there is going to be an eight-minute stretch, and that's a long time. That's a quarter of a basketball game, a quarter of a college basketball game. An eight-minute stretch where you don't make plays, where you, where you dribble the ball off your foot, where you make a bad pass, where you turn the ball over, and all of a sudden 
a six-point lead becomes a four-point deficit in two minutes. John Calipari calls a timeout, pulls his seven masks down, gets mad, yells, screams, and ball game over. It happened against dating back to the Kansas game early in the season. It happened against North Carolina. It happened against Louisville. It happened against Georgia. It happened against Auburn. It happened against Mizzou earlier this week. And it happened against Tennessee. And so there's no real big picture takeaway because it keeps happening every single game. I do have kind of, I guess you would say, two thoughts on it, even though they're not big picture, because the big picture is the season's over. And I hate to say it, and I hate to be rude, and it's so disappointing because I love the passion of the Kentucky fan base, but they know, many of you are Kentucky fans, know the season's over. It, it, there's just, there's no reason, there is not one ounce of reason to think that this season can be salvaged because if Kentucky does not blow people out, they are not winning a game that can be decided by a couple plays in the final five or six minutes of the game. It's just not happening. So with it, two quick thoughts on Kentucky. I think the first one, I'm kind of tired of blaming John Calipari. And I have been more critical of John Calipari over the last two months than I have in the last decade. And if you want to blame him for the roster construction of this team, then I can't blame you for that. We know what their limitations are. They don't have a guard that can beat you off the dribble and make plays for others. They don't have enough three-point shooting. They're big guys. None of them can shoot. None of them can space the floor. And so you watch Gonzaga, Baylor, whoever, Michigan. They have guys, even their big guys can make plays, and Kentucky doesn't have those guys. And so, yes, a lot of this is on John Calipari for a very, very poor construction of this particular roster. But what I would also say is, as critical as I've been of John Calipari, at a certain point I can't blame him, and I'll tell you why. Because at a certain point, he puts his team in position to win the game every single game. And I've been critical of him. And I, I get the criticism of the offense, and I get criticism of the roster construction. But at some point, if you have your team in position to win games Every single game. And guys just don't make plays. There's nothing you can do as a coach. Now maybe you could change a few things behind the scenes, but the guy has done everything. He's changed the starting lineups. He's changed the rotations. He's pulled this guy. He's added that guy. And at a certain point, somebody's just got to want to go and make a play. I just talked about it with Keon Johnson in Tennessee. Tennessee needed that guy. Keon Johnson for at least one night became that guy. Well, what's your excuse, Kentucky? You're all five stars. You were all highly rated coming in. Olivier Saar, you averaged double for you were all ACC last year. What's your excuse? Brandon Boston, top 10 recruit. People are still saying you're a first rounder, which I don't get. But what's your excuse? Terrence Clark, what's going on with your ankle? How are you not playing? Everybody on this roster, every time they need one play, dribble it off your foot, bad turnover, bad pass. Missed open jump shot. And at a certain point, you can blame John Calipari, but for what? He's putting his team in position to win every single game, and they don't have guys making plays. And if they just had one guy step up, and I thought on Saturday night it would be Keon Brooks, but it wasn't. But if they just have one guy step up, it completely changes the landscape of not only these games, but the season. But they don't have that guy, and I don't know if that guy will emerge over the last couple weeks, but at a certain point, I'm done blaming John Calipari. My second thought 
And it plays into my first part, which is kind of the makeup of the team, the psyche of the team. But I thought of something really interesting and how it may pertain to Kentucky's struggles. I thought about it during the game on Saturday, and it's probably a story that I think Kentucky fans will like. They'll scratch their head, but they'll like it. And I may have told on the podcast before. But when Kentucky was struggling, I was thinking back to last year and Emmanuel Quickly. And Emmanuel Quickly might be the single, one of the two or three best stories in the NBA right now. Late first round pick, tearing things up for the Knicks, top media market in the world. Everybody loves him. He is the story in the NBA right now in terms of rookies outside of maybe, maybe LaMelo Ball. But I thought of a story with Emmanuel Quickly, and I think it pertains nicely to this Kentucky team specifically. And what is that story? I think I told it last year when Emmanuel Quickly was in the process of winning SEC Player of the Year, but let me tell it again really quick. Emmanuel Quickly, for people who don't know, five-star McDonald's All-American from Baltimore, but really struggled his freshman year. And I had somebody close to the Kentucky program last year tell me this story, and I loved it, so I'm going to share it here. But they told me his first year, he was kind of in awe. He kind of walked in, and he saw the banners, and he saw John Calipari, the guy that he sees on TV, and he'd do the stuff that all of Kentucky's guys are doing right now, dribble it off his foot, whatever. But if you remember back to the 2019 NCAA tournament with P.J. Washington, Tyler Hero, Keldon Johnson, Emmanuel quickly didn't play. A year later, he was the SEC Player of the Year. And so what changed? Well, first of all, Emmanuel quickly has an above-reproach work ethic. Like, calling it elite would be underselling it. I've told the story, but there were people that, that visited Kentucky in the fall, got to know some of the players. Oh, E.J. Montgomery is great. Ashton Hagens is great. Oh, but I didn't really get to know Emmanuel quickly because I never saw him because he was in the facility the entire time. And then when he was done working out, he was getting treatment, he was watching film. One was his incredible work ethic, but two, there was an attitude shift. And this is why it's important for Kentucky's fans and I'm going to, or Kentucky's current team, excuse me. And let me finish up the story by saying this. I mentioned that first year, timid, anxious, Calipari gets on him and he sees that Hall of Famer from TV and he doesn't know what to do. And year two, he just came in saying, this is my year. I don't give an F. And so I'm going to tell a story. If you're in the car with kids, be, beware, there's going to be some swearing involved. But Calipari one day in practice is riding him, and he's riding him, and he's riding him, and he's riding him. This is a true story. I was told it by multiple people. I know for a fact it happened. Calipari's riding him. He's riding him. He's riding him. And finally, this is early in the season when he's not playing well, when nobody thinks, forget being a, a, a first-round pick. They think he's going to be back in Kentucky for his junior year. Calipari's riding him. He's riding him. He's riding him. And quickly turns around. He goes, yo. Shut the fuck up and excuse my language, and I'm sorry that that I I just said it like that, but he either said, shut the F up or F you or I effing got this or calm the F down. I'm in control now. Basically, it it was Emmanuel Quickly's I'm the captain now moment. And I think a lot of you listening would think of that as a negative. You'd be like, oh, my God, he swore at the coach. But everybody said that that moment changed the entire season for Kentucky and it changed the entire season for Emmanuel Quickly. And the reason that it changed the season is because of this. Is because of the fact that was the moment that John Calipari knew. He said, this kid, I can't break this kid. 
I've been riding him and riding him and riding him and pushing him and pushing him, and finally he snapped back, and finally he's not scared of me. And if he's not scared of me, he's not going to be afraid to go into Florida and hit big shots. He's not going to be afraid to go into Arkansas and hit big shots. He's not going to be afraid to go to Tennessee and hit big shots. He's not going to be afraid to go to the SEC tournament and hit big shots. And sure enough, he ended up as the SEC player of the year. And again, it sounds bad, but it was a great moment because it was like, I got this. I'm not taking this crap anymore. I, I'm, in, I'm in control. And I think about that story with this Kentucky team. I don't think they have a guy on this roster that has that mindset. And it's not an F you, I'm a jerk mindset. It's a F you, I got this, get off my behind, I'm taking over now. And when I think about that moment that Calipari pushed him so hard that he finally snapped, who on this roster has that mindset? Because Olivier Saar doesn't, I know that for a fact. Terrence Clark doesn't, he can't even get on the court. B.J. Boston, I don't think he does. Maybe like a Keon Brooks or Davion Mintz, but are they good enough to, to, to take that mindset and transition it to positive on the court? I don't know. And so I think when Kentucky has been at its best, and the reason they start so slow is because some of these guys, it takes them time to get that F you, Coach Cal, I got this mindset. But when they get it, it's game over. It was game over for Emmanuel Quickly. It was game over for Tyler Hero. It was game over for Tyler Eulis. It was game over for whoever. I don't know who else from, from throughout the, the time at Kentucky. But those are the kind of guys that thrive. Calipari's going to push, and he's 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 going to push. And you better be ready to push back, and I don't know that these guys are. And so I say all this just to very simply say, I don't think these Kentucky guys have that mindset, and until they get somebody in this program that's going to say, F this, we got this, we're taking over now, I'm in control now, I don't think it changes for Kentucky. Uh, what else? What else from this weekend? A few quick things we'll get out of here. I, I, I think those are really the two big things I think the third thing came on Sunday when Iowa lost at uh, Indiana. And it was funny because I talked about Indiana on Wednesday's show, or maybe it was Tuesday's show, and they were basically Kentucky in pinstripe pants. Can't win a close game. Every close game comes down to the wire. They're about to win. They're in position. And then all of a sudden, they dribble the ball off their own foot. They miss a wide-open three-pointer. And they almost did that on Sunday, by the way. They missed a bunch of layups or a bunch of free throws late. They missed a wide-open three-pointer late. But... They did end up beating Iowa in Indiana, in Bloomington, 67-65. For one day, I think Indiana is comfortably in the tournament. They needed that game. They're 10-8 and overall. They have two good wins over Iowa. They have a victory over Maryland, which is trending to be a potential tournament team. And they have a win, a win over Stanford and Providence in the preseason, which are solid wins. But to me, the bigger story is Iowa. The reason the bigger story is Iowa is very simply this. We thought that Iowa was a preseason national championship contender. Well, don't look now, but they are 13-6 and six and 7-5 and five overall after losing on Sunday. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time breaking down Iowa's depth chart, but here's what you need to know. They do not defend the, the ball well enough to win a national championship. Now, I will say in their defense, they have had some injuries. C.J. Frederick, really good player for them, averaging about 10 points a game. He has been out in and out of the lineup, out on Sunday. But you look at their defensive performances, they can't get stops when they need to. They lose to Ohio State earlier this week in a game at home in which they gave up, are you ready for this? 
89 points, including 48% shooting from the field and 44% shooting from three. You can't beat anybody when you allow them to shoot 44% from three, and they took over 30 threes. That's 14 threes. I'm not great at math, but that's 42 points just off threes. Before that, earlier in the week, they played Michigan State. Michigan State, never forget, was coming off of a game where they scored 37 points in a game against Rutgers. Michigan State had 43 at halftime, 78 in the game. Iowa won, but they won simply by outscoring people. And so when I look at Iowa, look, the Luka Garza stuff is great. Now, I'm going to just say it out right now. I'm going to get you ahead of a story that people aren't talking about. Everyone's just giving Luka Garza the National Player of the Year. If he can't get Iowa some wins, how are you going to give this guy National Player of the Year? They're 7-5 and five in the Big Ten. Coming out of the day, they're in seventh place in the league. Sixth place. How do you give that guy National Player of the Year, sixth best team in his own league? To me, I think Io DeSumo from Illinois is starting to position himself. I think that... Um, I think that, that maybe Corey Kispert from Gonzaga is starting to position himself. But how are you going to give the National Player of the Year to Luka Garza? But back to Iowa. Because to me, they cannot make enough stops to win a national championship. And when I look at them, that was the expectation coming into the year. But they're now 7-5 and five in the Big Ten. They've lost four of their last five. And in those games, they gave up 80-plus points in four, well, they gave up 78 or more in four of them. In those four losses, they've given up 80 plus points in three of them. Indiana, they played the game at their pace on Sunday and were able to win. But Iowa just isn't very good right now, man. Iowa just cannot get stops, and they can't. You can't expect to outscore people. You're not going to be able to outscore people for six straight times in the NCAA tournament. It's interesting. I've told this story, but years ago, I was out on Virginia, and the reason I was out on Virginia, I had a coach who was part of multiple national championships at the college level. He wasn't the head coach, but he was part of staffs that were part of multiple national championships. And when Virginia lost to UMBC, he told me, Virginia will never win a national championship unless they change their style. Now, to Virginia's credit, they got much more efficient offensively the following year. But what he told me was very simply, he goes, if Virginia does not change their style. They're not Because you can't win one way. You can't win every game 64-62 in the NCAA tournament. You're going to play teams that are fast, teams that are athletic, teams that shoot threes, teams with interior, six different teams over six different nights. You need to be able to play multiple ways to win. And I think Iowa is the exact opposite of Virginia from a few years ago. I think they're great if the game's in the 80s and you're not going to defend them and they're not going to defend you and it's basically going to turn into a pickup game. But when they need stops, they can't get them. And I think it's time to eliminate them <laughs> as a legitimate national championship contender. Real quick, in the Big Ten, we'll get to, I have one story in the Big Ten I want to get to in a minute, but I do want to hit a couple other things. First of all, USC beats UCLA. USC is now in first place in the Pac-12. I would love to talk about this more, but it's hard for me to take any major takeaways away because UCLA's two best interior players, Cody Riley and Jalen Hill, did not play in this game. When you play the team that has arguably the best front court in college basketball with a future top three pick in Evan Mobley, it makes it kind of hard to win a game against a USC team like that. But I will say, I'm just telling you right now, USC is probably the best team in college basketball that nobody realizes is legitimately good. This is a team that's now 15-3. and three. They are 9-2 and two in the Pac-12, tied for first place. And two of their three losses 
came without their starting point guard, a kid named Ethan Anderson. And so when I look at this team, I'm just telling you, watch out for them because they're trending about a four seed, a five seed, and with the length and size that they have inside, led by Evan Mobley and his older brother Isaiah Mobley. Evan Mobley's averaging, excuse me, 17 points, nine rebounds, and three blocks per game. They shoot the three ball well. They don't turn the ball over. This USC team is really good. But again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time breaking it down because of the fact that uh, UCLA, who I think is really good as well, their two best interior players were not playing. Uh, very quickly, the only other thing really from the weekend is Alabama. Everyone's freaking out about, oh my God, they lost for a second time in three weeks. Well, I don't buy it. And with Alabama, I think what's really interesting is a couple things. First of all, there's this big narrative of, well, if they don't make a bunch of threes, they can't win. Well, that's just not true. Because never forget, they beat LSU earlier this week. They shot the ball well. You know how many threes they had against LSU? Beat them by 18? 6 of 24 from three. Beat, one, beat LSU by 18. Week before that, played Kentucky. Scored 70 points. You know how many three-pointers they hit in that game? 6 of 20. And so when I look at Alabama, one, I think they're fine. Two, I think they played two teams that were uniquely built to beat them. Super uh, tough, super physical defensive teams, Oklahoma and Missouri. And if you want to talk about big picture, what could give Alabama problems, those kinds of teams are certainly it. But with Alabama, there's something else I think going on that's worth discussing, and that's this. I think they're just tired because they haven't had a break. And I'll tell you a funny story. that I was talking to a buddy of mine coaches at a school that actually has not had a COVID shutdown at all this season. And what he told me was, he goes, you'd think it'd be the opposite, right? You'd think it'd be everybody that has had pauses is at the huge disadvantage because they haven't played or they haven't practiced or whatever. And I think that is fair. But what he also said is, dude, we've been going, we've been playing two games a week every week since October was when we started up. We're tired, man. We're tired. I mean, you got to play conference games this time of year, teams that know you, teams that aren't afraid of you. You're getting on planes. You're staying in hotels. And then at this point in the year, at least under normal circumstances, if you get a few days off, you can go back to the hotel room. You know, me and my wife can go out. We can take the kids somewhere. We can't go anywhere. We can't do anything. And so we're kind of hitting a wall where we're pretty mentally drained of we haven't been able to stop. And so I wonder if the same thing is happening with Alabama. They played 17 games overall. They've played 11 games in conference. You look at this conference, there are teams like Vanderbilt that's only played eight. South Carolina's only played eight. So I'm not saying anybody wants to be shut down, but I do think the teams that haven't been shut down are probably hitting a little bit of a wall. It's a long season. To go four months without a break is exhausting. And so I'm not worried about Bama. They have an interesting schedule coming up. They play at South Carolina this week. It's a game they should win. They play Georgia at A&M Vandy. That's four straight games that should be easy wins. If they lose a couple of those games, I'm going to worry. I'm not worried yet. I just think they're worn down. I think the hype, I think it got a little bit exhausting, all that stuff. Only other thing, I mentioned Iowa earlier, and I just want to give credit to the top of the Big Ten, not Iowa, because they stink. But I think we're looking at a scenario where, look, Baylor and Gonzaga are the story, but I want you guys to keep an eye on the top half of the Big Ten because there are three teams that I believe are really, really, really starting to separate themselves at the top of the Big Ten, and that is 
Michigan, which hasn't played in forever because of COVID. And then after Michigan, there is also Ohio State and there is Illinois. First of all, Michigan's 13-1. They haven't played because of COVID in forever. January 22nd. Of course, the crazy thing about them is they haven't even had a positive test, but apparently the new strain of COVID came to Michigan's campus, and so they shut down all athletics. So Michigan was actually supposed to play Illinois this week, which would have been an awesome game. But instead, Michigan does not play again until the 16th. So we're talking about, or maybe not the 16th, but next, next Saturday. So they're not playing for another till the 13th, I guess. So we're not talking about another four or five days. Also want to give a shout out to Ohio State which is quietly playing really well right now. They have won seven of their last eight. The only loss they had was a game against Purdue where they basically led the entire game before completely falling apart. They are playing really well. They won at Iowa on Thursday night, and they are trending to be a potential number one seed. And then finally, Illinois. Illinois, I think, is a very interesting team. A few weeks ago, they had lost a couple games, fell to 9-5 and five overall, 5-3 five and three in the Big Ten. They've won four straight since then. They beat the breaks off of Wisconsin on Saturday, and I think they're really starting to look like a team that can potentially make a deep run. And what I think is interesting about Illinois is they are probably the quote-unquote most talented team in the Big Ten. They are a team with big athletic guards. Io DeSumo, their point guard, is a NBA caliber player. And like I said, I think he is starting to creep up into the National Player of the Year conversation, averaging 21-6-5, 41% shooting from three, Kofi Coburn is awesome, so I think those three teams are really very interesting in the Big Ten, and they're worth watching. We'll break them down more, but I think i got to get out of here. It's a lot of college basketball for the day after the Super Bowl, huh? <laughs> anyway, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Just If you ever see me in public, just slap me. I deserve it sometimes. But that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Sorry about those F-bombs in the middle, by the way. Not usually my style. Had to prove a point. I was getting dramatic. I was going dramatic, AT. But before we get out of here, as I mentioned earlier, Please make sure that you're subscribed. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. And make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, the YouTube page. And as I said, that mailing list is really ramping up, so make sure that you're following there as well. By the way, make sure you're subscribed because I got some great guests coming up this week. Uh, I don't want to name names just yet because stuff always falls through, but two really good guests Tuesday, Wednesday, and then next week I got a huge guest for you guys that I know you're going to love, but that's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice, and I will be back later this week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family 
No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.